Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. Today I am joined by one of my very best friends in the watch industry, co-founder and visionary designer and internet maestro behind the brand that is Straum, Norway's hottest up-and-coming independent. Øystein Husby, how are you, my friend, and welcome to the studio. Thanks, Rob. I feel very special now with that great intro. Thank you. Well, it's well-deserved, and all of the plaudits are falling at your feet today because our friend and colleague and, as you said, safe space in a storm, Lasse, is unfortunately unable to join us due to technical issues. And uh, is that all? Do we think it's technical issues, or has he been arrested again? (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe it's an excuse for something else. They get a packed day, and he was stressing around. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. All right. Well, that's that's a little more savory, a bit more PG-13 than some of the stories he's come out with in the time that we spent together, which has been quite extensive considering that Straum has not been, well, it's it's been in motion for a while, but not been visible for that long. Could you tell us a little bit about when you first announced the brand and how it came to be in the first place? Sure. Yeah. So we, we launched Straum back in, when was it? 20, I forget now the years. It's all a bit... It's all a blur, but it was uh, August 2020. We launched uh, our first pre-order of the Upav series and and our uh, limited edition Rostarkarv. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we we ran that uh, pre-sale period uh, throughout 2020, and um, we shipped our products um, at the very beginning of 2021. What was it that inspired you and Lasse to start a watch brand in the first place? Lasse and I, we've been discussing sort of starting up something together for for many years. Um, initially, we had some ideas around uh, camera gear and um, more like consumer electronic stuff. But we quickly realized that uh, there, w- there was a trend among startups where they would launch a Kickstarter. And in the course of that Kickstarter campaign, uh, they would see their product copied and sold at half the cost on Amazon and AliExpress and all these outlets. And uh, we quickly realized that we had to somehow protect ourselves from that and gain some sort of um, uh, moat or competitive advantage. And we realized that uh, uh, building a a brand and um, and doing that based on something unique in our case Norway would sort of protect us a bit from that. So so we quickly realized that okay let's let's go that route and and we thought um, what better way to capture a, a country and its stories uh, than uh, building uh, watches with uh, with dials from from that place. So it's interesting that the route you took to protect your intellectual property and your endeavor was actually one of spirit and one of heart and one of inspiration rather than the product itself. And yet the product is one of the most remarkable and ambitious designs from a young watch brand that I have ever seen and one that I think has ever been as well. Where did you get that inspiration from are you both watch collectors from the past or did you just start with a blank sheet of paper and this is what you thought the perfect norwegian watch should look like it's a good question and uh, i think it's fair to say that we started from a blank slate we're both obviously industrial designers so we we have experience creating products and and when you do that you have to completely immerse yourself in that product category 
but we certainly had to start from scratch in terms of um well understanding watches as a product of course that didn't happen overnight but i think it was a really fun creative process for Lars and i to you know just immerse ourselves in that world and and understand sort of you know how that world works and and um what is enticing and attractive products for consumers and and so yeah we just uh, we just got moving on that I was having an interesting discussion the other day with a colleague about the importance of an effective marketing and communication strategy. And we were discussing whether or not a good marketing and communication strategy is able to sell a bad product or whether the real competition in the industry exists only between good products and then the differentiator is how effective your communication and your brand presentation is. Which products did you identify as being market leaders and which brand presentations did you think also stood out from the crowd when you were doing your research before beginning with Strom? That's a good question. Uh, to answer that first point, I think, um, I, think, I think you can be better at marketing than product for a period of time. But I think eventually um, it, it's not a viable long-term strategy. But, but in terms of... Um, sort of the brands that we looked at, we obviously looked at the sort of big brands within the product category of watches, but we also saw that uh, we, we can take inspiration from, from other brands and, and uh, sort of import some of their qualities into the watch world, right? And we, we didn't aim for the sort of um, very technical, very perhaps arguably clinical look of, of some of these uh, big brands, in uh, watches, we wanted to really combine the sort of the raw qualities of nature with the sort of technical aspects of, of watchmaking. So, um, you know, relevant brands there would be um, well, Aesop is is an interesting brand, right? In how it combines the sort of natural but uh, sort of technical. Um, of course, we looked at companies like Apple for inspiration on just presentation and, and quality of content. Um, yeah. And you took those ideas and you brought them to life in a website that I was saying to you before we went on air is quite stunning. When you are behind the scenes working for a watch brand, you know how much time and effort goes into creating an effective and engaging web presence. I know it personally, having tried to build my own sites, having built the realtime.show website and having no experience in that field whatsoever you amazed me by telling me you actually are behind this website so if there are any would-be brand owners out there who are looking at your product presentation in awe and wondering how many tens of thousands you spent on pro coders to bring that vision to life and to get the website to function as it does could you tell us a little bit about what you had to go through to get to the level to enable you to do it yourself and what foibles there are in this style of website that you would change if you had the chance yeah sure i think what Lasse and i realized very early on is that if we're going to start a new brand and we want to sort of um, maximize our chances of success we need to have a really good product presentation especially because we're selling these watches online we don't have any retail locations and we're selling them as a pre-order and we're selling them outside of Kickstarter, um, which is you know a, a platform that 
if anything, provides trust between buyer and seller, right? And it being sort of a an escrow account type thing, we 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 had to make the presentation really great and trustworthy, uh, so that you know people would would think that okay, you know, we can see here these guys are professional. They've taken great care to to make this presentation. So I'm going to trust them with my my money, basically. Uh, so so that was the starting point, and then. Um, Doing it yourself comes with a lot of freedom. You can you can achieve, or you can basically build what you what you'd like to have. Uh, but with that also comes um, sort of being conscious of discipline, right? Because if you can build anything, it might not mean that it's the right thing to build. So so I mean, the key for us, Lasse and I, was really just to basically discuss constantly what we should and shouldn't be doing, and and um, and iterate on on the designs before we eventually decided okay this is what we're going to build how many hours do you think it took you to put that together because it is quite stunning for a brand new brand to jump straight into the industry with such professional and polished visual presentations not just the photography not just the videos not just the instagram ads that was actually what attracted me to your endeavor in the first instance i remember seeing it for the first time i was i remember exactly where i was i was sitting on a bench in dresden waiting for Dave Sargent of Fratello to finish up in some pharmacy somewhere. And he came out and I said, have you seen this brand? And he, I think he'd also seen an ad earlier in the day. And he was like, yeah, what's going on with this brand? How, where have they come from? Do we know who they are? And we didn't, none of us did. And I think Thor as well in uh, in Norway, in, in your home country, had also picked up on the Instagram ads at the same time. And we all said, okay, right, we have to work with these guys, whoever the hell they are, wherever the hell they've come from. How long did it take you, like literally, to build that website? Are we talking weeks, uh, months? And I guess it's still an ongoing process where you refine it over and over and over again as you learn new things, right? Yeah, I think um, I'm I'm hesitant to put a number on that because uh, I uh, I'm not quite sure, and I I'm not sure if I want to know. <laughs> but I think uh, uh, it was. Um, I mean, Lasse and I were both industrial designers, but I also work. Um, uh, uh, with digital design and, and website design in my sort of day-to-day work. Um, so, so I obviously had, um, some skill sets there, but I, but I also had to acquire skills around sort of coding and not just basic coding, but, um, more sort of, um, um, specifically, uh, JavaScript, et cetera, to, to achieve what we wanted to. So, uh, I don't know. Um, it, it certainly took that, that process took many months not with sort of constant uh, design and coding but uh but yeah it, w- it was a fairly long process in terms of refinement so you mentioned that you decided to not start your journey on kickstarter and you also highlighted the fact that many brands do decide to go with kickstarter because of that immediate trust that is built between uh proposer and would-be consumer what was it that tipped the balance away from Kickstarter and made you decide to go on your own? Was it simply a, a margin consideration or was it something else? I, I think the margins, obviously, we, we don't know exactly what they were or is at this moment, but uh, the margin played in. But I think the the main reason was that when you when you present and sell on Kickstarter, it follows a very typical template. And indeed, you know, there's a term now which is you know Kickstarter watches. So I think uh, that 
obviously the the upside is that it's a great marketing platform but the downside is that you tend to look quite similar to other brands and um and then you also sort of when you fall into that category people might have an easier time discounting you as well because they think well okay you know watches on kickstarter half of them don't succeed so i don't want to put my money in this right yeah fair enough as it is of course you've built a pretty broad customer base already and you are going to be expanding the collection very soon which we'll talk about in detail in a moment but before we get to that one other point you raised earlier about not having a retailer network and obviously that's a difficult thing to achieve anyway because it does require a product to have a huge amount of margin in it so that the retailer can take a hefty slice to pay their bills their staff keep the electricity on keep the heating on etc etc all those hidden costs that nobody really Uh, factors in are you really interested in ever moving into that sales sphere do you want physical representation around the world and if so when could we expect to see it it's a good question and uh, it's one that we constantly assess and um, we obviously get uh, customers asking us quite frequently about sort of hey can i can I uh, find this watch somewhere in a retail store that I can try it out and see how it how it fits me and if I like it? We have people contacting us, asking us to stop by our offices to 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 try out our product. So, I mean, the the need is obvious, um, but it also uh, adds a lot of complexity to our operations, right? Because um, if you want to do retail well, you need to have inventory you need to distribute that inventory you need to be i guess more adaptive in in um sort of manufacturing so it introduces a whole set of challenges that that uh we might take on but uh, up until this point we've opted not to take them on and quite frankly you need a pretty enormous margin which many brands like Strom, which has set out with quite an ambitious design to begin with, doesn't have. Simply, you can't sell the watches for what you're selling them for, do the creative and previously undone things with the aesthetics that you want to do, and also have enough room left to pay the retailers. Have you considered, therefore, a vertical Strom boutique, like maybe just one in the world, just in Oslo, just near where you're based, is that more of a likely route for you to get uh, watches physically into people's hands in the first instance? Yeah, I think I think that's a good, uh, at least starting point, sort of dipping our toes into into the retail world. So we've been toying with this idea of having a shared office, shared uh, showroom type thing. And, uh, you know, if we can invite people, not just from Norway, but from around the world to that place, and, you know, that'd be great. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's a good... Uh, starting point and then you know we could also partner with online shops uh as a, as a way to sort of um test the waters with retail but um but nothing nothing specific yet that we planned is there any chance and this just came to me when i imagine what a Straum boutique might look like that you would move into a lifestyle products as well i mean you have this outdoorsy vibe all of your imagery is focused on the norwegian countryside and the beauty of norwegian nature i could well imagine leather goods like holdalls or like some you know nice anoraks even like co-branded uh straum and uh brinja or amundsen clothing which uh, is a nice segue to the next 
topic, of course, but just to focus on that one at this point in time, if you had a Stroud Boutique, do you think it could be a place where you could experiment with other areas? Because like you say, both you and Lassa come from, you know, industrial design, but not specifically watchmaking. So could you turn, could you turn your hands towards other fields as well in that process? Yeah, I think, you know, expanding that product portfolio into, into that direction makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and both Lassa and I also have experience designing, you know, various product categories, including soft goods. And, and um, I think that category also lends itself quite well to this combination of sort of raw natural materials and technical materials and, and the sort of combination of the two. So um, it's certainly on our radar, um, but um, nothing definite yet. There's also a lot more margin in soft goods in general. So that could be an interesting way to supplement the cost of having a boutique in Oslo, which I'm sure is one of the more expensive areas of real estate in the world. Now, we're going to move on to the real focal point of today's episode, which is discussing the new collection, which is about to debut the Yan Mayan collection. I mentioned in passing the clothing brands Amundsen and Brynja, who were both sponsors of our expedition from Svalbard to Jan Mayen in an attempt to climb Birenberg, would you maybe be kind enough to give the listeners that haven't heard about this life-changing expedition what it is, where it came from, and what it meant to the brand of Straum? So we started uh, discussing this project um, quite some time ago, and uh, we we sought your help on what is coming in our, our pipeline, the the feedback that we've received from customers around our products. And you know, we, we discussed on multiple occasions the sort of updates that we should do on our products. And uh, and then we had this idea that, you know, Jan Mayen was a really special place. And Jan Mayen is a tiny speck of land sort of halfway between Iceland and, and Svalbard that is a very, very unique place. It's a volcanic island situated, you know, in the middle of nowhere, five days sailing from from anywhere. And it has this amazing landscape and geography with, you know, Berenberg, the active volcano towering above the island and just these moss-clad rolling hills and black volcanic sand. So so it was a huge, huge um, source of inspiration for for uh, our next uh, watches and so we we decided at that point that you know we'll, we'll let's co-design this uh, product with you guys let's um start planning a expedition to Jan Mayen and um and yeah off we off we went our trip started in Oslo when we all convened at the airport uh, well not quite all of us i think there were seven of us to begin with right there was you and Lasse me, Johannes, Axel. Uh, Johannes is a videographer, Axel, head photographer, sort of creative director on the trip. Uh, Lars Petter was our guide and nurse. And then Chris, Chrisander Bergen, our first person view drone pilot. And we did bump into Carl at that point, who was a member of the crew that we would be sailing with from Svalbard to Jan Mayen. Uh, he's a pilot for SAS in his day job, but he also works with Sail Norway on these long open ocean trips. And then when we landed in Tromsø before we went up to Longebien, we picked up Captain John Mackin, an English-born Irishman, the captain of the Valiente, 
who would be keeping us safe. And then finally, when we arrived on Svalbard, we met up with Morton, who was uh, our last crew member. And Morton is sort of a journalist by trade, really, isn't he? More like a communications expert, but he'd been working for Sail Norway in that department. And for payment, he had requested a trip to Jan Mayen, as he is a keen ornithologist and wanted to see the bird life there, because it is quite stunning. So us 10 banded together on that first night, and then we loaded up the boat in the morning and we set sail. And Could you describe the journey on the way out and the waves that we encountered between Svalbard and Jan Mayen? Yeah, so we we set sail that day. First part of that trip is uh, you sail out of Isfjorn, which is this main fjord in Svalbard leading up to, to Longyearbyen. And uh, I think all of us were full of anticipation of what would come next. And, and uh, we were curious about sort of, would we get seasick, et cetera? Uh, we quickly confirmed the fact that, yes, we would get seasick. Uh, <laughs> and it only took, I don't know, what was it, half a meter wave for us to, yeah. to start throwing up? Yeah. At, the, at that point, we thought that was uh, choppy enough, but we didn't know what was awaiting us, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, what we experienced then is that as you leave that East Fjord and you, you know, you come out on open waters, things change. It's a very different ball game. It was uh, quite intense from the beginning. Uh, John, the captain, gave us a a briefing on the expected weather and the um, sort of sailing conditions. They seemed quite optimal, but what we experienced was that they. I guess they became even more optimal because the, the wind picked up quite hard, quite quickly. And uh, before we knew it, you know, we had, I think the peak top waves were like seven meter plus. Before we knew it, the boom broke, which then sent the boom off to one side, which then tore the sail in half. So we found ourselves, ourselves, you know, in the middle of the ocean, a crew of mostly inexperienced people having to deal with a fairly critical situation in, in sailing terms. So that that, that was, uh, yeah, it was a interesting start. A baptism of fire for sure. Um, but luckily we were able to get it under control before the boat started to spin because in that, oh, in those waves, that could have been the end of us before our journey had even really begun. But we made it in the end, um, propelled by small sails and the engine itself to the shore of Jan Mayen. And then we all donned our immersion suits hopped into little inflatable ribs and headed for the shore where we pitched a camp and then almost immediately we started our attack on the slopes of Birkenberg and give us a little bit of insight into the mountain itself what it's like what kind of weather conditions we faced and uh, the overall experience from a personal perspective. Jan Mayen is a, obviously a very exposed island in the middle of the ocean, and uh, Berenbadig is a very exposed peak on that island. The weather forecast said shifting conditions, trending towards worse conditions. So um, when we started out, uh, things looked a bit grim, but you know we we had no other choice but to to make the attempt. And uh, so yeah, like you you said, f- from our camp on on the beach, we uh, we started. Uh, uh, walking towards the the peak, we made good progress. We, we were lucky with the weather in the beginning of the trip, and uh, things went pretty well. Conditions were indeed sort of shifting, and uh, you know, in one minute we had rain, the next one we had, you know, 
amazing sun and and no clouds and uh in the next one again we had sort of snow and blizzard and and minus degrees right so really from the start we we sort of um we experienced uh the elements of uh, of that island and its location and all of this was in the name of watch design which is uh, a bit bizarre uh, for people listening maybe that wonder why we bothered risking life and limb to climb a remote arctic volcano and it's a good question but i think being there and actually seeing the landscape and the drama associated with it and taking samples of rocks and photographs of snow drifts and the colors of the mosses, you know, so that you could match them with Pantones later on was quite valuable to creating something really special that stands out from the crowd. Do you regard the trip in that sense as a success? Absolutely. Jan Mayen looks amazing on photos, but when you arrive, it is certainly out of this world it 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 does feel like a different planet um the first thing that greets you is you know black volcanic sand which is just really strange to see and um yeah and as we sort of explored that island uh we you know we we i think we all fell in love with it it was uh, an amazing place and um anywhere you went you saw uh new weird things i mean that beach that we landed on was littered with uh, driftwood from typically i guess russia and siberia uh, all of a sudden you stumbled upon a huge whale carcass like a, i think one of them was perhaps a blue whale carcass um and i uh, know it was just a, it was an amazing experience that was like something out of a film actually because we we stepped onto this beach, which revealed itself to us through the mist quite gradually. And at first, I certainly thought that all of the debris on the beach was driftwood. Mm. It was all bleached white by like UV exposure and years and years of being there untouched. It wasn't until I stumbled across the very obvious first carcass, which was obvious to me because of the massive pelvic girdle that was presented before us. But... Then I realized, I looked around, and most of the wood, or what I thought to be wood, was actually whale ribs, was actually bones. The, this beach in the middle of nowhere was strewn with the remnants of its bloody past, because at one point, it was quite a popular island for whalers, I believe, and they would drag the whales ashore, and there they would carve them up. Like It isn't just natural, like these whales have washed up over years and they've been left untouched, like it was actually... Um, a working beach for a very brief period, relatively speaking, in its history. But it has left marks of human habitation or at least um, human presence in the form of these little huts that were on <laughs> on the beach. And there was a couple, couple with some funny names. One in particular, do you want to tell the audience about the one you know I'm thinking of? I know which one you're thinking of. And it's uh, called, in Norwegian, it's called Puppebu which is um, directly translated to boob shack, I guess. <laughs> oh, we, call, we call it titty hut on the street, but whatever you want to say, yeah, boob shack, titty hut, that's yeah. fine. So what, <laughs> what does one find inside boob boo? So uh, it was a, um, it, it, honestly, it was a cozy uh, small shack. It was, it was um, uh, just, you know, you come into that uh, room and there's a small kitchenette there. There's a, there's one tiny room with a, a bunk bed and, and then there's a small sort of living room 
with some windows facing facing the beach. So very simple quarters, but uh, you know, it was. Um, I, I'm guessing in in bad cold weather that is like a oasis. Yeah, talking of an oasis, um, what what else could one find in that hut on the walls, for example, and perhaps in the uh, in the bookshelves? Actually, I don't remember. I think you have to refresh my memory here, uh, Rob. Oh, I lo- I don't remember. <laughs> okay, so um, its name comes perhaps in part from um, what kind of reading material is available on site. There was a lot of um, retro adult magazines present mm. in uh, Poopaboo. And there was some uh, rather choice artwork on the walls revealing certain parts of certain anatomies that we could talk about, but we don't want to shine too bright a light on it because it isn't really what Jan Mayen is known for. But it was a funny little quirk, kind of reminding us that humans are humans wherever they are in the world. Whichever distant, remote corner they find themselves in, they will do something typically stupid and juvenile but um it was it was quite hilarious you know uh, and let's face it we'd all been at sea for several days and survived some pretty choppy waters and then we got there like that was um a sight for sore eyes i suppose we could say (laughs) anyway the expedition itself like the goal of it to study the the landscape and the colors and the textures of yan mayan was a success you managed to source some genuine basalt from the one region on the island we were allowed to take rocks away from and uh, that will surface again in the near future in some fashion uh, in the Straum lineup so anybody interested in seeing what the boys develop with that keep an eye on it uh, when it came to the summit of Birnberg we didn't quite make it did we we, we fell a uh, 180 meters short or close to and ended up on a small outcrop uh, just beneath the crater rim, which we dubbed Straum Summit. There's some great images taken from that point, which I'm sure you'll be able to find on Straum's social media channels and the website. Do you want to just give us the website and the social media handle while we're here? Sure. So the Instagram account is uh, Straum, that's S-T-R-A-U-M. And our website is Straum, same, dot C-O. Okay, that's important. So it's dot C-O, not Com. The name Straum is not a word that English speakers will be familiar with, but it, it is a common or at least normal word in uh, Norwegian, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. But um, what does it mean and why did you choose it? In Norway, we actually have two main languages, believe it or not. They're quite similar. We have Bukmol, which is the sort of uh, the Danish heritage dialect language. And then we have Nynorsk, which is... Um, the sort of, honestly, the more native sort of locally sourced dialect. But in any case, Ström in Nynorsk means a few different things. Uh, I guess the closest uh, English one would be current or electricity. Yeah, those are probably the most correct uh, translations. And so the word beyond just sounding i think short and 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 it has character there is also a a very obvious connection there to you know the the movement of time and and um yeah that, i guess that's the main connection yeah the flowing of norwegian nature as well always makes me think like of a river running by and uh, that progress in a forward direction interestingly enough you know strom is um german for electricity or 
current as well, but with an O. Mm. So I, I didn't actually draw a line between those two words when I first saw Straum. And obviously you can hear the difference in the way that Einstein pronounces it and the way that I pronounce it because he pronounces it correctly and I pronounce it like an idiot English native speaker. But one of the reasons why you chose it after doing extensive market research was because it was easy to pronounce or at least say out loud in, in many different languages, right? And it had the beautiful symmetry on the dial. So what were the other names that you considered for the brand? Yeah, you're right. Uh, we, we did a fairly solid study on that name. Our initial name that we had centered on was uh, Skog, which means forest in Norwegian. But after doing some research, we realized that it didn't really convey the kind of quality and emotions that we wanted. And it also had some slight unfortunate connotations to other things. And then, then uh, we, we started that name process again. And, and we sort of, one of our main sort of tools there was to just look through Norway, find really traditional names, look at the map of Norway. You know, Norway's filled with lots of these great, cool words and, and, and phrases. And then we eventually found that Strøm was the, um, the favorite one among our um, sort of participants in the study. And that, that uh, study was with a lot of international uh, people. Uh, and so they, they said that, you know, that word reminded them of of uh, perhaps a bit something German, something of quality. It had um, strength to it and um, confidence. So, so all those qualities combined uh, made it a fairly simple choice for us in the end. And a good choice as well. I remember when you first told me what your initial name for the brand was, and I was was very glad, to say the least, that you ended up settling on Stram. Before we wrap up this show let's spend as much time as we can talking about the watches themselves that were born of our long discussions and the trip to Jan Mayen and your and Lasse's desire to improve every aspect of your initial release in some tangible way or another so tell us about the Jan Mayen collection what people can expect to see from it what changes you consciously made to it from the first design and where they can get their hands on one Sure. So I think it is really a sort of great evolution of our first lineup of, of products. Uh, and we've taken a lot of the customer feedback to heart. Uh, one key theme that popped up in that was um, uh, a slightly smaller dial size, right? So our Upav and Rosakov cases were 41 millimeters. Uh, the Jan Mayen collection is now 39 so, so that one was a, a key piece of the update. Um, we also have now a fully integrated bracelet. It is the same great bracelet that we have built and designed for Upav as well, but it has a custom integration with a case that just works really well in our opinion. Another feedback that we got was that people wanted screw down crowns. So, you know, we made that happen. Um, the case back is now a, also a, a screw down case back. So th- that was also a key trend in, in, in the feedback. And then, uh, of course, the, perhaps the main star of the show is, um, the dials, the new dials. So we obviously spent a lot of time designing new dials based on the textures of our trip to Jan Mayen. Um, so we have the blue and green dial that is inspired by the ocean on our travels from Svalbard over to Jan Mayen. Uh, the green dial is, is inspired by the, the green moss and the landscape of, 
of the Jan Mayen. And then we have a black and white dial, which is inspired by the black beach that we saw on Jan Mayen and also the glacier and the sort of texture of um, new, newly sort of formed snow on a hard, icy surface. So you get these beautiful ridges with the streaks of fresh snow running across. And of course, uh, one key upgrade is also the movement, which is now a Le Jupiter movement with a much longer power reserve, uh, generally, you know, higher quality. So, um, so yeah, that's the, that's the gist of it. So the case is smaller and a rather nice 39 millimeters, which is a bit of a sweet spot in my opinion for a watch like this. Its intended purpose, of course, is to be a perfect companion on a day out in the wild. So it's an explorer's watch for maybe, as Lassa likes to say, a happy amateur rather than Sir Ranulph Fiennes or some like crazy 10-month-at-sea-around-the-world Captain Cook-type figure. That case's wearability is is superb, but the dial's also improved its legibility in some ways. So in the first in the first edition, you had a floating dial, and now you've gone for a more traditional edge-to-edge dial, which actually helps with the visual impact of the overall watch, because the first one, despite being bigger, looked even bigger than its 41 millimeters. Now you have quite a compact and robust model. Is this something that you thought would be appealing to your consumership? Yeah, I think uh, we we really like this uh, floating dial concept. We think it 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 worked really well on Upov. Uh, but what we saw is that once we sort of reduced the size of this case from forty one to thirty nine, we wanted to keep this dial the sort of the the, the main actor of this product. Uh, and so we we saw that uh, if we can expand this to the full width of the case. And, and of course, move into a more traditional direction when it comes to the dial, it would lead to an even better presentation, I think, of, of uh, the dial. So th- that's why we chose that um, that move. And lastly, before we wrap it up, what about people that aren't so much into bracelets and want to wear a fabric or a leather strap? Is that possible with a new Yan Mayan collection? That is certainly possible. The integration of that bracelet is... Um, a fairly traditional one, so so we have plans to to expand the strap offering a lot. So um, we'll see some great great straps coming up. Very nice indeed. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up there, and we're going to get Lassab on the show when he's available and uh, out of jail or wherever the heck he is. <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, Einstein, you'll be off to Bali for three months, I believe, on another expedition of different proportions. That's right. And we'll get you both on the show together at some point in the future as well because we are very keen to follow Straum in all of your endeavors all of your adventures and certainly as you grow in the watch industry as i'm sure you will continue to thanks for listening guys if you want to get in touch with a show then you can contact me at rob nuds on instagram that's r-o-b-n-u-d-d-s or you can contact my regular co-host alan ben joseph at a-l-o-n-b-e-n-j-o-s-e-p-h or you can get in touch with us via email i'm there at rob at the real time dot show or alon is there at alon at the real time dot show we'll be back soon until then stay safe and keep on ticking